Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. Psalm chapter number 51. Psalm chapter 51 is where we're going to start our time today. And what a great song to sing as we explore Psalm chapter 51. His, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I want you to think about this thought for a second because we're going to open with this thought and we're going to close with this thought today. God forgives, so let him. God forgives, so let him. Psalm chapter 51 is a chapter of the book of songs, we've, Psalms that we've been studying throughout the entire summer. The purpose of this study is to give us an understanding of what this song book that God's people have been using for uh, uh, many, many generations and to understand the context of them and so that we can apply their truths to our lives and comfort ourselves in times of need and then find strength and purpose so that we can do the call that God has upon our life. In Psalm chapter 51, it's one of the most well-known psalms throughout all of the book of uh, the song book of Psalms. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. I want you to see what the Bible says here. The Bible says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness and according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, and blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee... Thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. It's a very heavy words as this psalm starts to open up, because he uses words like transgression. He uses words like iniquity. He talks about evil in verse number four, and he talks about judgment and being a sinner in verse number four. So all throughout those first four verses, we see a very heavy aspect of this psalm of David. To understand it, we're going to remember where this passage comes from. How many of you have a Bible that between the place where it says Psalm 51 and the first verse, there's a little bit of commentary between that? If you have a Bible that's like that, say yes. Okay, so some people say that that's inspired. Some people don't believe that that's inspired. Um, It just provides some context for what this passage of Scripture is all about. Can we read what this passage of Scripture is referring to? So in Psalm 51, it's not just an abstract one where it's just pulled out of the darkness and it's like, let's just talk about this for a second. There's a specific event that couples Psalm chapter 51. There's something that happened that created this psalm inside of David's heart. The Holy Spirit inspires him to write these words. So when he says, have mercy upon me, O God, when he talks about blot out my transgressions, remove the iniquity from me, there's something specific that happens. And the scripture in this short commentary gives us the happenstance that brings us to the writing of Psalm chapter 51. Can I read it, what my my scripture says here? It says this, to the chief musician, 
So when we read this, it's talking to somebody. David wrote this psalm, and it's not just a private diary. It's not a mental note that he's keeping and, and hidden away for some time. This is given to not just an abstract songwriter, not the guy who's in the corner of the coffee shop like, here, bro, take this. It's given to the chief musician, the lead songwriter for David's administration has been given this by David. So it's a psalm of David. We see that. When Nathan, the prophet, came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If there were a few, there's a few passages of scripture that I wish we could just remove out of the Bible and just say, oh, that never happened. There's a few of them that would be okay. Second Samuel chapter 11 is one of those for me. Because David is an incredible person. He's like the hero of heroes, isn't he? It's the kind of person that you look at and like, I want to be like David. Then you read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and you think, oh. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11 that brings him to the place of writing Psalm chapter 51. Well, what happened? David, the great king of Israel, whose banner still waves over Israel today. If you were to go to Jerusalem, you would see his star there had been king for about 10 years or so, give or take 10 years. The little boy who was the shepherd, the one who was the vagabond fleeing refuge from Saul, has been now the king of Israel for 10 years. And oh, it's been an amazing 10 years. He's been a great king. All of the dalliances and failures of Saul's administration, the guy who looked like he would be the great king, really has a great king leading the nation. David. David has taken Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. For a long time, there was this island of giant war-monging people known as the Jebusites. And David, in one of his first acts of king, for the last 10 years, one of his first acts is he went into Jerusalem and he kicked the Jebusites out. In fact, some people, whenever they were, uh, when they're hunting, if you know a hunter in your life, say yes. If you know a hunter, sometimes they take trophies of dead animals and they put their, their heads on the walls. If you've seen something like that, say yes. David, when he came into Jerusalem, the Bible tells us in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, when David came into Jerusalem, he goes into the palace. He doesn't put an elk. He doesn't put a rhinoceros. He took the head of Goliath and put it on the mantle. The Bible tells us when he came into Jerusalem, he brought with him the head of Goliath. Oh my goodness. David was a king of kings. He was a man of mans. He was just everything you could want in a king. And for 10 years, administration's been going awesome. It's time to go to war. And maybe David wasn't feeling up to it. Maybe David's fatigued. Maybe he wants to have a little bit of a break in his schedule. It's been so busy. So he sends his general, his most trusted advisor, his cousin, Joab. And Joab can take care of business. Joab's a man's man. So he sends Joab to go out to the war. And David is just lounging around. In fact, the Bible tells us he's still in bed around noontime. And at noon, he kind of gets up from the bed. And he goes out onto his terrace. And when he looks out over the terrace, he sees his amazing kingdom, and he spies a young lady. She's bathing herself. And this young woman, Bathsheba, is unclothed, and the scripture says that David looks at her 
and he lusts after her. This man of power inquires to who she is. He discovers that she is Uriah the Hittite's wife. Uriah wasn't just a nobody. When David was fleeing for those years, he had 36 manly men who were with him the entire time. They would be known as his mighty men in 2 Samuel chapter 29. And one of those mighty men, one of David's mighty men, was Uriah the Hittite. We don't know how long they had been married, but on this day, Uriah is at battle. David's in the palace, and Bathsheba is unclothed. David inquires to who she is, sends for her to come to the palace, and he has his way with her. The product of that rendezvous is that a few weeks later, Bathsheba sends a note to David. Hey, David, I'm expecting. David's flustered. What an embarrassment. While Uriah's away, I'm impregnating his wife. So David starts to scurry and scam to figure out what he can do. He sends word to Joab. Joab, send Uriah home. Uriah comes into the palace. Uriah, so good to see you, brother. I can imagine him saying, tell me how the war is going. And he begins to explain to him how the war is going. Great, great, thank you. Uriah, thank you. We'll send you back to battle. But tonight, why don't you just go home and enjoy your wife and enjoy your home? But Uriah's character is such that he would not betray his brothers in the field by enjoying the comforts of his bed. And so he sleeps on the doorpost of his king's palace. David's frustrated. What am I going to do? He invites David, uh, Uriah back in. And that night he prepares for him a feast. And in that feast, he gets him drunk. And yet even a drunken Uriah has more character than to betray his brothers in arms and enjoy his married bed for a night. David doesn't know what to do, and so his scheming and his plotting go even down a darker hole. He writes a note to Joab the general, and he tells Joab the general that whenever the battle is raging, that he is to put Uriah at the centermost, the hottest part of the battle, and at a command, he's to retreat several armies, but let Uriah stay in the middle and meet his demise. He takes that message and gives it to a trusted soldier, Uriah. Uriah takes his death notice to Joab. Can you imagine Joab taking the note? Thank you. How's the king? Everything well? Good? All right? Thank and can you see the coldness start to envelope Joab as he reads it? Thank you, Uriah. The next day, Uriah goes out to fight with his brothers, and he meets his demise on the battlefield. Uriah falls that day. And in his death, his wife begins to grieve. She's now a widow. She's expecting. David decides to marry her and conceal the whole matter. How benevolent, how noble, how gracious it would be for this wonderful king to marry one of his fallen soldiers, one of his brothers in arms, and she's even expecting. 
to take that child and that wife in as his own. Can you see the great sin of David in this instance? He brings David in. He weds Bathsheba, and everything seems to be going along fine until the prophet shows up. Nathan, the prophet, to see you, sir. David walks in, and can you see the discomfort in David? How he's not looking Nathan in the eye, and he's talking about all the plans he has and and changing the subject. And Nathan explains to him a story about a person, a parable, if you will, about a person who had violated and stolen from somebody. David's ire becomes so enraged that he calls for the man to die and to repay fourfold. And Nathan takes that message of a parable and says, David, thou art the man. The child that you conceived will die, and you have reaped great harm upon your name. The baby's born, and the baby dies. And it's in that context that we find, excuse me, the nation of Israel, that great respected place is a tattered shell of what it was. Everything that Israel was, all the greatness that they had enjoyed, is now lost in the hope and the abandonment of the selfish desires of a great leader. And that once mighty nation seems to be a fragment of who it is. And it's that context where we find Psalm 51. Do you see how deep the sorrow is of this passage? In Psalm 51, the scripture opens up by saying, have mercy also, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy tender loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my sin, iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before thee, against, uh, before me. Against thee, and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. In this context, we see three things that David does. The first thing we do is he looks at the character of God. I want you to see about the character of God. First, number one, I want you to see his attributes. Notice his attributes are enumerated in threefold. Notice how David talks about God. Number one, he says in verse one, he is a merciful God. Do you know that God is a merciful God? Oftentimes we get a picture of God as a big bully with a baseball bat just waiting, waiting to club us when we do something wrong. Almost as if he takes glee. Ah, 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 ah. Peasant, I will crush you. As if we get this idea of who gods are that are not, uh, of who the gods might be that are pagan and heathen in origin. The God of the Bible is a merciful God. The one true God is a merciful God. He is not looking to crush, malign, beat, and destroy people. The Bible tells us that the God of the Bible so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The God of the Bible says that God commended or he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the attribute of God that David leans into. Number one, you are merciful. But notice this, not only is he merciful, 
But notice the word here, thy loving kindness in verse number one. According to thy loving kindness. Is there somebody in your life that you just like to be kind to? When your child says, can we get a candy bar? Don't you want to give them a candy bar? When your, child, when, when your spouse says, oh, that looks really pretty, don't you want to buy her something? Why? Because you love her. You love him. They're special to you. The Bible tells us that the attributes of God are so much so that he is merciful. He's not trying to beat your brains out. He's merciful, and he loves us. He has not just love like the, this is the tough love. It's the loving kindness that comes here and says, come on, let's go get ice cream together. It's the loving kindness of God. He implores the attributes of God. Notice this, he's not only lovingly kind, he's not only merciful, but the Bible tells us that he is tender. Do you see verse number one where it says, according to the multitude of what kind of mercies? Thy tender mercies. God is not the lightning bolt God that loves to destroy. The Bible tells us that God loves to demonstrate his tender mercies. So he leans upon the attributes of God. Number two, he leans into the abilities of God. What is God able to do that you can't do? In verse number two, he says, wash me thoroughly from my sin and iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Why? Because I can't cleanse my own sin. There's a lot of things I can do. I can try to self-improve. I can practice good hygiene. I can exercise. I can save money. I can do a number of different things with my life. But you know what I can't do with my life? I can't save sin. I can't forgive sin. I have no ability to do that. As much as I try and as much as I would like to, I can't save sin. And you can't either. Sin is a problem that only God can fix. And so in verse number two, he says, I need you to do something that I can't do. Wash me thoroughly from my sin, my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And then number three, he demonstrates that God is the avenger. Now in verse number three, it starts to get real because he says, for I acknowledge my transgression. What's huge about verse number three is David says, this is my fault. This is my fault. This is not my parents' fault. This is not culture's fault. This is not the United States of America's fault. This isn't Joe Biden's fault. This is my fault. It's not 116 degrees which made me do this. It wasn't this uh, cycle of sin. and so- This is on me. For I acknowledge my sin and my transgression is ever before me. Verse number four says this. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. This is what's amazing. When we become candid and real with God, we recognize that our sin is to a holy God. I might have sinned against Uriah. I might have sinned against Bathsheba. I may have sinned against the millions of Jews that call the nation of Israel their home. But God, my first offense is before you. Before you and you only have I sinned. How could I sin? Look at what I've done in verse 4. I have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. You know what David says here in verse number 4? He says, I've put you, God, in a compromising position. God, I've put you as the judge of the universe in such a horrible place. Why? Because David was the man after God's own heart. 
There was a king. He was the Israelite king, Saul. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He was everything that a king should have been. But on three different occasions, he had violated the Lord. He had violated the Lord. He had violated the Lord. In every one of those situations, the Lord said, you're done. You're done. You are done. And the Bible tells us that God took the mantle of leadership away from Saul. And he gave it to David because David was a man after God's own heart. He had blessed David. He took him from a shepherd's field. He had blessed David. He had given him salvation. He had blessed David. He put them on a throne. He blessed David. He allowed him to beat up giants. David didn't have ability to beat up giants. God had an ability to beat up giants. And so God had been doing this and this and this and this in David's life. And this is the way David repays God. For all that he's done, he repays God for the multitude of his mercies. He repays God for the blessing and benefit and wealth and opportunity and power. He repays God by sleeping with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite and covering it all up in a fake marriage ceremony of benevolence. God, it's my bad. And God, in my sin, you're the one who I violated the most. You're the one who I messed up first. Oh, there's a whole list of people that come after you, but thee and thee only have I sinned. And I recognize, God, you're the avenger of these things. Notice what the consequences of sin is. Did any of you grow up going to, like, strong revival preaching. If you grew up in a strong revival preaching atmosphere, say yes. Okay, I grew up, when I was a young person, we would go to a summer camp, and these summer camps, they would have strong revival preaching. And in the strong revival preaching, sometimes the preacher would say things like this, young person day, I got to tell you something, some of you are going down a sinful hell road of destruction. In that sinful hell road of destruction, you're going out, you're doing that which is evil, you're going to reap upon yourself the consequences of your sin. I'm going to tell you about a young man. This young man deliberately walked out of his parents' house. He took into his car a rock and roll cassette player, and he put that rock and roll music inside of his car. And as he slammed the door on his parents and said, I hate you, he listened to the devil's music as he was driving down the road. He hit a turn. He was going too fast. He wrapped that car around a, a light pole, and he met eternity. Young person, the wages of sin will bring a great problem in your life. It will reap death. And I remember sitting there thinking, whoa. I will never listen to rock and roll on a cassette tape. <laughs> Thankfully, by then, they were into CDs. <laughs> and I remember hearing that, and it's like, oh, man, oh, oh, the sin. You, you sin, you will wrap your car around a light pole and die. Now, sometimes people do sin. They wrap themselves around a light pole, and they do die. Here in this state, there's been 100 traffic fatalities so far this year. Many due to excessive speeding. Most of them do because people like to drive and drink, which is such a shame. So that, those type of things happen. But we don't know how God will affect a person's sin. A, a person who drinks and drives, for instance, Many times we'll drink and drive 12 to 15 times before they're ever caught. 
And so they take that, they, they're buzzed and they're drunk, they get in the car, it's like, well, I did it this time, what's the big deal? I did it this time, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? And we forget that God is the avenger. And then, and then we say things like, well, how could somebody be saved and do that? And that's a really good question, because I imagine David was saying those same things as well. How could David be saved, know Christ, and do all of those things? I want you to see the harmful condition that David finds himself in. Look at verse number five. The Bible says this, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin doth my mother conceive me. This is what's amazing. The Bible teaches us that all people sin. It doesn't matter who you are. You sin and I sin. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. I'm no better than King David. And King David was no better than me. We all sin, don't we? The Bible shows this universal condition in verse number five that every single person struggles with this sin. Now, your sin might not be killing a Hittite. That was David's sin. You may have never killed a Hittite or you may have never slept with a Bathsheba, but oh, you've sinned just like I have. We've all sinned, haven't we? And the Bible teaches us that because we've sinned, we bring upon ourselves a reproach. In fact, the Bible tells us that we bring death into ourselves. That's why we are separated from God. That's why we are never be, never be good enough to get to heaven. That's why we can't earn good works in order to merit favor with God. All people sin. And because we've sinned, we need a Savior. Notice this, number two, authenticity is difficult. The Bible tells us in verse number six, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. God desires for you and I to be authentic internally. We live in plastic Bananaville, don't we? If you, how many of you have traveled outside of this state or this city and gone someplace back east? And they say, where are you from? And you say, oh, I'm from Las Vegas. And one of the reactions is like this. Ooh. <laughs> you know that. They're, Ooh. When I went to college, I went to college in Florida. It's like Christian World USA. So I go down to college in Florida, and people ask me all the time, where are you from? Las Vegas. Oh. I might as well have been crying out, leper, unclean, unclean. <laughs> where are you from? I'm from Las Vegas. Oh. And I had more than a dozen people ask me this question. Do you live in a casino? <laughs> yeah, my dad's name is Caesar. He has a palace. We hang out there. <laughs> I had one guy, one guy legitimately asked me, he said, is your mom like a showgirl? <laughs> that man never met Anna Tice. <laughs> no, no, what are you, what are you at? Is my mom a showgirl? What are you talking about? You, you dumb people. Because <laughs> there's this facade about this city, right? That whole three-mile strip down there. And I love Las Vegas. I really do. I love that you can go get a great burger any time of day. I love that we have things called the sphere. Where else do they have a sphere? Yeah, you've got, you've got the eye in London. We have the link and a sphere. We have friends here today who are visiting from Europe. They said, have you ever been to Europe? I said, no, but I've been to Paris, the small one in Las Vegas. I've been to the Eiffel Tower. I've done that. So we understand fake. 
right? We really do. If you live in this city, you understand fake. We've got volcanoes and dancing waters. We have people walking up and down the street. We have Super Mario Brothers and all these things walking up and down the streets of our city. We understand fake. Notice God says in verse number six, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. You know what God wants from us? He wants us just to be real. Authenticity is difficult because we like to put up masks that maybe this person will like this mask and maybe you'll like this mask and maybe you'll like this mask and on our social media profiles, this is a mask that works in this environment. These are the masks I wear for this place. And God says, I don't want you wearing a mask with me. I want you to be real with me. Oh, here we we get dressed up, we look nice, we come in, carry our Bibles, all those things are good and appropriate, right? But God wants us to be real before him. Not playing some little Christian game, not playing some little make-believe. God says, I desire, what's the word? Truth in the inward parts. All people sin. And we can't find forgiveness for our sin until we get real with who we are. We see the effects of sin. Look in verse number seven. Purge me with hyssop. We're going to come back to that in a second. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Now let think about this for a second in verse number eight. He's asking to have joy and gladness. Why? Because he has anxiety and depression in his life. Hello. Here's a man who's been suffering with anxiety and depression in his life. Hello. Why is he going through anxiety and depression in his life? Because he's got all this sin trapped up inside of him. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. He's literally going through physical pain because of his sin in his life. He feels dirty. He feels at loss. He has emotional fatigue and he has physical pain all because of the sin that he has allowed himself to participate in. Does that sound like the United States of America at all? Emotional pain, physical loss, uh, 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 an absence of direction, dirty. Do you ever feel dirty? Do you ever get on your social media page and just like, man, it's just dirty. Do you ever turn on the TV and watch TV for 30 minutes and just feel like, I need to go take a shower? You ever feel that way? There's sin that's running rampant all over the place. And the sin that has come inside of his life, he says, I need you to do something that I can't do for myself. So he says in verse number seven, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is a, is, um, a tool that was used by the Jews whenever they were doing the Passover, a reminder of God's forgiveness in their life. They would have a lamb sacrificed and the lamb's blood would be put into a bull and they would take hyssop. If you were to look at it, it would look like lavender, long strands of grass with purple flowers on the end of it. They would bind it together and they'd put that hyssop in there. And with that hyssop, they would put it on the top of the doors and on the sides of the doors. And the Bible tells us that the Passover or the death angel would pass over them because the lamb, the blood of a lamb was spilt for their sin. The blood of the lamb, when he says, purge me with hyssop, I need the blood of the lamb to pass over and cover my sin. 
I need what the lamb can provide that I can't provide. I need that put on my account because if it's not on my account, if it's not on my door, if it's not on the place where I reside, I'm lost and I'm empty. In fact, I deserve death for what I've done. So would you put the blood of the lamb and impart it to my residence? I'm so thankful that that picture is shown, but I'm so thankful that that was lived out with the Lamb of God. When Jesus Christ took his blood and his blood was spilt out on a cross for your sins and for my sins. And when I come to Christ and I say, I'm a sinner and I'm authentic before Christ and I say, I've blown it and I've messed up and I'm, and I'm authentic before the Savior and acknowledging my sin and admitting my fault and I say, I need you to give me that hyssop. I need you to give that blood to my account. The Bible tells us that Jesus says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. That hyssop, the blood being applied, Lord, I just need that blood applied to my account again. Now check this out. What happens when he does that? In verse number, verse number nine, the Bible says, hide thy face from my sin. See the holy comfort that's present. Hide thy face from my sin and blot out all mine iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Is he saying, restore unto me thy salvation? Is he saying, save me again? I need to be saved again. No, he's saying, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. A person can be saved and not have the joy of the Lord as their strength. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Notice the holy comfort. I'm going to start this thing over again. Oh, I'm not going to get born again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be re-saved. I'm just going to stop living in the consequences of my sin. And I'm not going to allow what has my, I'm not going to allow my failure to define me. I'm not going to allow my past experiences to become my future program. I'm going to walk renewed in Jesus Christ. And where's that start? Well, I'm going to give up this and I'm going to give up this and I'm going to try this. No, it starts by saying, God, I'm an idiot. But you forgive idiots. Would you forgive this one? God, I blew it royally. Oh, God, I messed up over there. Oh, God, I did this. Oh, I can't believe I said that, Lord. Actually, I know why I said it, Lord, and you know why I said it, Lord. I just can't believe that I said it publicly. <laughs> Lord, I, I messed up. Oh, God, I failed. God, you got to forgive me. Now, what God does is he requires us to bring a lamb and a bull and two turtle doves. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 16, for thou desirest not sacrifice. Do you know that God doesn't want your lamb? He doesn't want your $1,000. He doesn't want you to be in timeout for a week and just think about it and come back when you're really sorry. That's not the forgiveness of God. Go to your room. I'll tell you when you can come have dinner. That's not the way the Lord executes judgment. Thou desirest not sacrifice. Well, when you, when you get better and when you really think you cut, that's thou desirest not sacrifice. What does he say? Verse 16, else I would give it. 
If I could give a sacrifice and get the forgiveness of God, let me do that all day long. If I can pay a thousand bucks and get the forgiveness of God, let's do that all day long, right? Thousand bucks, country to country, depending on inflation and the rise of the dollar and the uh, economy. It's different for different people, right? If there was a sacrifice that could be made, then I would make it. But he says, you don't run a sacrifice. Notice what you want in verse 16. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. God's not sitting there like, good, another lamb died. Good, go get a bull. Go get two bulls. Yes, I like when bulls die. How silly is that, right? I gave you $1,000, Lord. Lord, I will work in the nursery. This is my sacrifice for my sin. Don't, wait, what are you talking about? Do you see the sarcasm dripping? There's, there's nothing there. The sacrifices, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What is the thing that pleases God? A broken spirit that says, I messed up. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? But, but don't you really, do you have to mean it? What do you mean, mean it? What do you mean, mean it? Well, you really got to mean it. Define mean it. Well, if you mean it, then you'll bring a sacrifice. Oh, okay, thanks. That's not what the Bible says. What is the sacrifice of God? A broken and contrite heart. How do you know if somebody has a broken and contrite heart? The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So how do I demonstrate a broken and contrite heart? I say, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? That's a broken and contrite heart. Well, do you mean it or are you just saying it? Okay, you be God and you determine whether or not somebody means it or if they're just saying it. All I'm saying is the Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Anybody, 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 even a guy who murders one of his best friends, sleeps with his wife and tries to cover it up like a really bad guy like a really bad guy like that who would act like he's a noble person and taking in a widow all the while she's carrying his baby, a dude like that, that kind of guy. I mean, that's a bad dude, right? Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Well, that was King David. Yeah, aren't you thankful you didn't do what King David did? He gets to restart he restores this relationship. He's not getting born again into this relationship. He's restoring it. Just like when your kid does something wrong and they have to get a SWAT to get back into a place of, yeah, I was wrong. That relationship is restored. There is a renewed purpose then with his life. And there is refreshing truths. Oh, wait to see these truths. These are transformative. It's so good because when you understand what did Saul do? Do you remember King Saul? King Saul, look at the bad things he did. He sacrificed in a wrong way. You're not supposed to sacrifice Saul. Yeah, I'll just take care of it. Oh, that was bad. He failed to obey completely. God said, do this. He did it like 90%. That's a good, strong A-. minus. He sacrificed incompletely. On the last night of his life, he dined with a witch. Not the best thing to do, but he was hungry. 
These are the bad things Saul did. And God said, you are no longer king. These are the bad things. You are no longer king. What? He dined with a bitch? Witch? Big deal. W, witch. It was witch. It was witch. <laughs> you guys, don't go there. It was really bad. Don't. <laughs> you guys just lost everything, huh? Somebody's here and they're like, glad my kids were in Camp Liberty, never going back to that church again. It's like, let's just pray now, right? <laughs> so he does these bad things. Look at the bad things David does. <laughs> he cusses in church. No, he doesn't do those things. Look at the bad things that David does. He has an adulterous affair. He used power to conceal his sin. He arranged for the murder of a close ally. Saul's sin, David's sin. He staged a benevolent marriage to appear noble. What a creep. How could God forgive David? How could God forgive David? Because he asked. How could God forgive David of all those bad things? David asked. Saul never did. How could God let you into heaven? Because you asked. Well, I'm trying really hard and I did these things. Oh, yeah, good job, Saul. How could God let a sinner like Matt into heaven? Because he asked. Well, does he really mean it? Yeah, I really don't want to go to hell. Amen. Really don't. So how could you get into heaven? I asked, would you forgive me of my sin? How could Saul forgive, how could God forgive David? Because he asked, would God have forgiven Saul? Why not? Christians serve, not in the value of their contribution, but in the virtue of his character. Why do Christians serve God? Not because, look, we got that superstar. He can really serve God. God doesn't need superstars because everything that's done in service to the Lord is because of the virtue of God's character. Check this out. All religious activity exists to reflect God's goodness, not man's accomplishment. Everything, everything exists Everything I do is not so, well, look at me. I have these buttons on my chest now. I am a Christian. All religious activity exists to reflect God's goodness, not man's accomplishments. Number three, there is no sin greater than the ability of God to forgive. There is no sin. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. You're right. I just don't think God can forgive me well, then your sin's greater than God's forgiveness. You've sinned so bad that Jesus Christ himself could not save you. Well, I wouldn't say that way. Then understand, there's no sin greater than God's ability to forgive. Well, 
What is the chastening of God? That person's being wrapped around a telephone pole. That person is having all of these emotional issues, maybe even some pain, maybe some, some physical things going on in their life. Why, why would God do... The chastening of God arrives in many forms. So God will chasten in a number of different ways. Sometimes it will be revealed emotionally. Sometimes it will be hidden. Sometimes it isolates people. And sometimes you get in a car wreck. Okay? The chastening by God arrives in many forms, but it has a singular purpose always, and that is restoration. It's always restoration. Why does God execute punishment upon his believers? Because he wants to bring them close to himself. Wants to bring, not to prove a point, not to show how God he is. I'm the God. It's not the way God punishes for the purpose of restoration. Number five, God's cleansing is available to anyone who asks for it. Well, they were doing this thing that was really naughty. Is there anyone who did anything more naughty than David? Right? How could God be justified? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. I want you to know I sinned, and in my sin, and in my sin, I put you in a compromising position. And so, Lord, I throw myself at the mercy of your judgment. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. Why? Because you asked. God forgives, let him. You don't have to go through this cycle. You don't have to go into this timeout. You don't have to wait for the big one to hit. God forgives, let him. And if he can forgive a dude like David, and David will enjoy about another three decades of amazing ministry, purpose, awesome life experiences, wonderful, wonderful king. He will even have a son named Solomon that will be the greatest, wisest, richest man who ever lives, will write books of the Bible. If God can use that dude who did some pretty atrocious stuff, God can forgive you. God forgives. Let him. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the time together today. Pray that it would be a help to these, my friends. And Father, I pray that you would let it be an encouragement as we lean into your forgiveness. May we remember it, use it, apply it for your glory in our lives. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.